Hey y'all, this is Lizzie. Tommy's not with me, unfortunately, but I wanted to share with y'all an interview I did with my dad, who personally knew Sheriff Flournoy from episode two, Texas, the best little whorehouse in Texas, the true story of the chicken ranch. So my dad personally knew him, him and my mom are visiting from Texas, and I thought I would get his firsthand account of his knowledge of Sheriff Flournoy. We will be back next week, I think, with our episode on Pennsylvania. So until then, I hope you enjoy this interview. Okay, first of all, do you want me to call refer to you as dad or by your actual name? You call me whatever you want. Okay. Well, my son calls you TK, so we'll call you TK. All right. First of all, welcome to New York. I always enjoy my trips to New York. Well, good. We've a- I've asked you to be on the program today because you personally knew Sheriff Flournoy. Actually, it's Sheriff Jim Flournoy. 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 That's what I said. And they, 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 they referred to him as Mr. Jim most of the time. Most people who knew him in Fayette County, where he was sheriff, referred to him as Mr. Jim. Well, okay, let's back up a little bit. In episode two, Texas, I covered the true story of the chicken coop, the best little whorehouse in Texas. And my dad here, TK, personally knew Mr. Jim. Correct. Hold on. I want to back up a little bit further. You graduated from Texas A&M what year? 1970? 1973. 1973. So the same year the chicken coop was shut down. Never heard it referred to as a chicken coop. Chicken ranch. Yes, right. Cheese and crackers, Lizzie. I'm shot. The chicken ranch was shut down. And you didn't know anybody at all who ever went there. That's correct. Okay. I believe you. I trust you. Now, you know there was a sister brothel down the road from the chicken ranch. No, I didn't. Called a wagon wheel. Like, rock me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Exactly. That's the name of the place. It was called a wagon wheel, and it was in my hometown of Sealy, Texas. Was it as classy as the chicken ranch? I never visited the chicken ranch. <laughs> but we all know how classy the chicken ranch was. I don't know. That's all That's all what you saw in the picture show, as they would say. No, I'd, on, in my research, my research indicated it was a very classy place. Well then I'll have to defer to you because I have no first-hand knowledge. All right. So you knew, when did you have the luck and blessing to get to know Mr. Jim? Well, as it happened, my mother was somewhat what you'd call in the law enforcement business. She was a probation officer for the 155th Judicial District, which included Fayette, Austin, and Waller counties. That's a pretty big area it sure is it sure is so as 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 her work would carry her over to Fayette County she'd come back with stories about Mr. Jim the sheriff over there who loomed large in in the in the life and times of LaGrange and environs of Fayette County and I also was very good friends and had a mentor in the local district attorney by the name of Oliver Kitzman Oliver Stanley Kitzman so he knew Mr. Jim yeah, because he worked with him. He was the district attorney for Fayette County, and Mr. Jim was the high sheriff, the chief law enforcement officer. So because of my relationship with the district attorney through my mother, who introduced me to the DA, that's how I got to know Sheriff Jim. 
And, 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 and so for the matter of uh, clarity and, and truth, which is important in podcast, I think, is in life. Yes. I didn't actually know Sheriff Jim prior to the incident that became known as the best little whorehouse in Texas. Right, because you were still at Texas A&M. At that time, I had graduated from Texas A&M and had matriculated over to Austin to the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs, where I was pursuing my master's degree. Okay, so tell me about him. Larger-than-life guy, just as nice and, and genteel a man as you'd ever want to meet. Can you elaborate on that? Well, he was he was um, a fellow that when you'd see him, he was he was uh, friendly. He would be engaging. He'd like to know a little bit about you. Uh, you could tell that people in town held him in high regard. Um, he was also a man not to be trifled with. He had quite a reputation for um, seeking the truth and using some what today might be viewed as creative means of doing so. Like what? Well, um, let's just say that he was not uh, beneath bringing a prisoner into his office and explaining to him the facts of life, and that sometimes things would be better off for them if they'd just go ahead and what he would call take care of their business, and they wouldn't need any lawyers to do that. Uh, interesting. How do you feel about that as an attorney? Well, as an attorney, I believe that everyone is entitled to legal counsel. And in fact, I sleep with a woman who provides that legal counsel to people accused of crimes. That's my mother. She's a defense attorney. Thank you. <laughs> uh, anyways. That was a bit of a showstopper, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I think marriage Although is a wonderful thing. I agree. I think one of my favorite stories is the when you were mowing the lawn outside of our house. Yeah, that was a good one. Can you tell it quick? You got two minutes to tell you? Okay, in my neighborhood, it's uh, kind of unusual for uh, the local resident to cut their own grass. And uh, anyway, I was out cutting our grass one day, and this lady in our neighborhood, uh, what you'd call... Uh, um, a settled lady, uh, a lady in her uh, latter years. A settled uh, lady. Uh, sometimes they would call them blue hairs. Uh, anyway, she noticed that I was doing a good job with my yard, and she stopped and got out of her car and came up to me and said, Young man, I see you do yard work. And I said, Well, yes, ma'am, I do. She said, Well, um, what do you charge for your work? I said, Well, I don't know. It just depends. But the lady inside of this house lets me sleep with her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Okay. (laughs) So back to Mr. Jim. Yeah. Sheriff Jim. Sheriff Jim. Wait, I thought you said people called him Mr. Jim. Both. I think his total law enforcement career was something like 47 years. He was a deputy sheriff and then he became sheriff. And he was sheriff for over three decades. Yes, he was. That's amazing. So did he ever speak to you about the chicken ranch? Oh, no. In fact, he regretted mightily that his tenure, his career, would be forever associated with the events surrounding uh, Miss Edna's place, they call the chicken ranch. Uh, He felt like there was a whole lot more that he'd done for his community. There was a whole lot more he'd like for his community to be known for than that. So actually, um, he was... uh, he was never one to mention it, and if you did mention it, uh, he became pretty sour. Yeah, I can understand that, especially looking at when I did the research for the episode, his statistics, his arrest statistics, um, and the amount of closures. Yeah, there weren't cases. Too, there weren't too many cases that went unsolved. He was he had really great 
what we'd call clearance rates. Clearance rates. Thank you. And um, so I can imagine that that must have bothered him. That bothered me too. Right. And I think most people in that community felt the same way. In fact, I think if you go back and look at the history of what occurred there, Sheriff Jim was, uh, was persuaded to sign a release by the uh, creators of that. I guess at the time was a Broadway show, mm-hmm. later became a, a, um, a movie. But he was persuaded to sign a release that he wouldn't um, bring any sort of lawsuits or legal challenges to the producers, uh, the creators of that work. At the time, they offered him, I believe, $15,000 to sign that release. The meeting at which that release was discussed was attended by he and the producer and Miss Edna, uh, the lady who was a proprietress of the chicken ranch. She had already been paid, unbeknownst to him, $25,000 for the same release, that she wouldn't challenge or bring any sort of legal action challenging the veracity or the correctness of the portrayal in the stage show and later movie. Um, the same producer offered Mr. Jim, Sheriff Jim, 15000 and he said, no, I'm not taking anything for that. You can give it to her. So Miss Edna was paid around $40,000 for a release. Um, but Mr. Jim will tell you, if he could speak today, that it was one of the biggest mistakes he ever made because it just brought what he thought discredit and, um, and, and a, a feeling that, uh, about his community that he believed to be unfair. Well, let me ask you this. Where did you hear, where did that story come from? Like, how do you know that if he didn't ever talk about it? Well, I believe that later on, uh, Sheriff Jim, after the fact, after the show came out, after he saw what he believed to be unwarranted attention paid to his his town, his hometown over this story, this singular story, um, is when he said he regretted the day that he didn't, that he had done that. Because had okay. he not done that, he would have certainly thought about bringing some sort of legal action to prevent the production because he felt like it was... It was uh, untrue in many respects. He felt like it was, uh, it glorified certain people. Um, it, he felt like it just cast a, a really bad light on his town, and he regretted it because he loved his town and he loved his town's people, and he felt like he let them down. Oh, that's kind of sad. Right. Because I don't think he did. At least w- researching the story, didn't. it didn't. I didn't get that impression whatsoever. Well, it's a complicated issue. Today, in retrospect, people will say, well, how could you have an open brothel operating? For the most part, I would say that these days, given the way the public looks at those sort of things, you might you might have that point of view, but you have to go back and see what was going on during that period of time. And I had a uh, personal relationship with the district attorney, and years later I asked him about that. And he said, Tom, what you need to understand is is that I didn't feel like I was elected to be the morals cop in Fayette County. And I suspect that Sheriff Jim felt the same way. And, in fact, Sheriff Jim will tell you that it was his belief that having a brothel there and having a place where people can go and exercise their desires in the ways they wish to in a safe environment uh, actually was a good thing. And I'm not about to start justifying his point of view on that, but he also was known to say that if any bad actors were to show up out there, and it happened, you'd, you'd have some outlaws and bandits that would come into Miss Edna's place and thought that they could just go and have a big, wild, whooping time, and they would, in the course of which, would would talk about certain things that they had done. 
and maybe people that were looking for him. And Miss Edna, guess what she did? First thing she did, she picked up the phone. She called Mr. Jim, and he came out, and he got those scofflaws, knuckleheads, he called them, knob knockers, he called them. He carried them back to justice. Well, that's what we talked about when we did the episode was that she would pass these folks along, and she also wouldn't hire any women who had open warrants against them. Um, or criminal records. Now, I, again, I don't know anything about the way she operated her business. I'm just going by what I was told. I know that, but I'm saying that my research backs up what you were told. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. But, you know, uh, Lizzie, the, uh, again, going back at that period of time, uh, it was not unusual for a sheriff to be absolutely the most powerful political individual in a county. And... Um, you take Sheriff uh, Flournoy's tenure as over 30 years. In my home county, T.A. Maddox was a sheriff for over 30 years. In Bastrop County, uh, a fellow by the name of Ira Raymond Hoskins, he was a sheriff for around 30 years, and his brother Elvin Hoskins was a sheriff in Caldwell County where I prosecuted for over 30 years. So the position of sheriff was probably the most powerful position in county government during that period of time. It's a big deal. It's not the same today is it probably not not necessarily the same and you also have to understand that a rural county is quite different than an urban county in terms of the stature that a particular office holder may occupy well it seems like we've been joined in the studio by somebody else you want to come say hi okay listener we're joined by the woman that TK gets to sleep with, according to him. Hello, this is Terry Bentley Hill. If you're, com- are you comfortable with your name being published on this podcast? Of course, Terry Bentley Hill. Okay, attorney at law. So Terry Bentley Hill, do you have anything interesting to add? I have a lot to add. I I watched a movie one time called Little the best little whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> so that is my authority on the subject that you're talking about today. We, I told the story on the podcast that we had season tickets to the Dallas Summer Musicals. And so I saw, I got to see the best little whorehouse in Texas on stage when I was probably about 13 or 14 years old. And I thought it was pretty cool that I got to see something called with the name whorehouse in it. Well, I had to cover your eyes at the opening scene where the cowboys came in and met the young ladies and went up into the room and shut the door. And I, you know, I just thought you were way too young to see things like that and know what was going on up there in those rooms. I think we might be rewriting history here because I do not recall my eyes being covered. Well, I wanted to. <laughs> I should have. That would have been a good mother. You are a good mother. Look how I turned out. No, you are wonderful. A listener. I have a lot to say about a lot of different things, but my, like I said, my authority is one movie with Dolly Parton. And that's all I know. Love her. I know. She's awesome. We do love her. Yes. She was wonderful. She could, I'm not sure she'd ever pass off, pass herself off as a madam, but she was awfully good. She could sure sing, I Will Always Love You she very well. She could sure sing it. Yeah. You know, she wrote that for yeah. who? For um, Porter Wagner. Porter Wagner. She wrote that and then she made tons of money when Whitney Houston. Tommy talked about that when we did our Texas episode. Yeah. In the bodyguard. Yep. Yeah. Whitney sang it. She killed it too. Yep. Two, 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 two murders on that song. Yeah. 
Y'all kind of hijacked the show. All right, Tom, let's get back to your interview. Thank you for joining us, Terry Bentley Hill, attorney at law. I have a lot to say about a lot of different things. Well, we'll have you back on. Next time you visit, we'll have you on. I'm somewhat insulted that my time was so short on this podcast. That's definitely going in. I'll go ahead and put in a word for Miss Terry Bentley Hill, attorney at law, if I may. Okay. You know what her motto is in her practice, which is 100% criminal defense? What? That would be a reasonable doubt for a reasonable fee. (laughs) This episode brought to you by Terry Bentley Hill, attorney at law. Yet the official criminal defense attorney of the status quo podcast. So anything else about uh, Sheriff Jim Flournoy? Flournoy. Flournoy. I I don't know why I'm having so much trouble pronouncing it. No, um, although I would agree with you that probably even the word these days, whorehouse, is uh, a word that you probably can't use too much, even though I suspect that they still exist. But um, as a matter of fact, um, I was relating to a group not too long ago, and uh, it was a group of lawyers, as a matter of fact, uh, and I was explaining to him what I do for a living, and some of what I do for a living might be described as being a lobbyist. Ooh. Oh, yeah, everybody hates that word. That's a hot-button word. A lobbyist. And I tell people, can I tell you, I'm going to cut you off for a second. When I tell people what you do, I say, you're a lobbyist, but the good guy kind. Well, I, I appreciate that. But um, I, I was reminded that I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, Don't tell my mama I'm a lobbyist. She thinks I'm a piano player in a whorehouse. And uh, I noticed that some people were uncomfortable with me even using the word whore. Yeah, because whore is such a derogatory word that the phrase that we use now is sex worker. And that's, I was very careful when we did the podcast, when we did the podcast episode to use that because prostitution is pejorative as well as whore. Whore is... Ooh, ooh, makes me uncomfortable saying. So next time you have to say, I'm a piano player in a brothel a brothel or a sex worker house. I think I'll just refrain from using the story at all. Or you could just say brothel. Brothel's okay. That's all right. I just made, maybe it's not. I just made that up. How about a sex house? Mama, we got to get you a microphone if you're going to put your two cents in. How about we move on? What else would you like to talk about, Lizzie? Tell me your favorite story, or tell me a favorite story as it relates to when you practice law in rural Texas. One of the things that you do that, that, that I wanted, one of the reasons I went to law school is that I worked for a group of lawyers for about three years before I did so. I worked for the Statewide Association of Prosecutors. I wasn't a lawyer at the time, <clears throat> but what I did do was help them over in the legislature uh, with their appropriations and things like that because I knew the Texas legislative process, I'd worked over there. But I was around all these lawyers, and I felt um, less than because they all had such great stories. They'd still tell stories of how they uh, vindicated uh, uh, people and, and, and sought justice and, uh, and did, did great things on behalf of, uh, of the people. And so I felt like that's something I want to do. I want to be able to tell my story. So... Um, it wasn't too long after I'd gotten a law degree and I'd gone to work in the district attorney's office in Lockhart, which is in a small county south of Austin, Caldwell County. As it was, my boss said, we're going to try a murder case this week. 
And here I am, a woolly little legal lamb, just barely out of law school. I did have a blue suit and a button-down collar shirt and a pair of banker shoes, so maybe I looked the part. So we tried this murder case. What had occurred, a gentleman was in a local what we call knife and gun club. I'll never forget, it was called Lozano's Family Beer Garden. And uh, got into an argument with a fellow patron in there. Well, before long, somebody pulled a knife. The victim was stabbed. And uh, the victim uh, uh, stumbled out of the beer joint into the parking lot, fell on the gravel, whereupon he was uh, collected by the EMS and taken down to the hospital where he later died. Oh, my gosh. Or expired, as they say. Hence the reason for a murder case. Like second degree? That would be intentional murder, first degree, five to 99 or life. Wait, say that last part again, the what? Five to 99 years or life imprisonment. Wait, is it still like that? It's five? You get you could only get five years for first degree murder? It's an indeterminate sentence is what we call in Texas. It can be five to 99 or life. That's kind of insane to me. If you're convicted of first degree murder, to only get five years? Well, you know what they say, Lizzie, there's some murders that can be justified. Like in the old days in Texas, they said that, you know, there were some people deserve murdering. And so you might be able to get off on justifiable homicide or you know, some people just needed killing. On the other hand, if you would steal a horse, they'd say there was never a horse that deserved stealing, and you could get life for that. So anyway... You can cut, Mom. You can just share the mic with Tom. Think about this situation. What if you had two 80-year-old, 85-year-old um, spouses, and one had terminal cancer and was suffering, and there was no way to provide them health care or any kind of... Um, in-home care, and the other spouse couldn't stand to see their loved one, their spouse, suffer like that. And they both made a pact that it would be better off if maybe the spouse was out of his misery. And so she took whatever action she needed to take to put him out of his misery. So if you think about it that way, well, I, wouldn't, I don't think that would be a first-degree murder. It's intentional murder. Well, but if, wouldn't it be assisted suicide? There, there, there are laws for assisted suicide. However, it's also intentional murder. It depends on where, what, how, you want to, how you want to charge it. But as a juror, would you want to send her to life in prison because she wanted to put her husband of 69 years out of misery? No, but, but I also, as a juror, wouldn't that convict her of first-degree murder. Well... It depends on what the law is and what the charge is. However, that is one of the reasons why. Got it. Okay, TK, get back to your story. So anyway, I, where were we, Lizzie? Yeah, okay, they charged him with intentional murder, 5 to 99 to death. 5 to 99. No, that's what they, they, they could, they charged him with first degree murder. That's right. right. But I think where I was in the fact pattern, as we call it, is the individual who had been stabbed, had fallen into the parking lot, into a gravel parking lot, he lie there until the ambulance came and took him over to the hospital where he later expired mm -hmm. or died, as some people might say. So in my prosecution of this case, uh, the DA didn't let me take any of the witnesses on, on the facts of the case. He allowed me to introduce the crime scene photos, I guess figuring I couldn't mess that up. Did you? And when you do that, when you do the crime scene photos, you put a witness on who can testify that the photos that you have accurately and correctly depict the scene 
at the time of the offense. So what kind of witness would that be? Would it be the person who took the photos? It could be the person who... The CSI? Or it could be someone who was there at the scene at the time and can testify in personal knowledge that this is the photographs depict the way the scene looked at the time of the crime. Okay. So in this case, it was the, it was the local police chief. His name was Mark Hennenkamp. And he was a veteran law enforcement officer. He'd been on the police force for about 20 years and later became the, the uh, police chief. So he was uh, called to testify as to uh, whether or not the photographs we wish to introduce accurately and correctly depicted the scene at Lozano's Family Bear Garden and the adjacent gravel parking lot. Okay. So we were going through these photographs. Everything was going good. I had on my blue suit and my button-down collar shirt and my banker shoes and my rep tie, and I looked like a lawyer, I thought. Aww. And uh, we came across some photographs of uh, the gravel parking lot. And uh, Liz, you may or may not know this, but I'm colorblind. But yes. I do know that. The, the reason why some of these photographs were being introduced was because the camera was pointed down at the parking lot and there were some spots and some other things in the gravel which were blood stains. It was where the victim had fallen into the parking lot and was bleeding until he was taken by the ambulance down to the, <laughs> to the hospital and where he expired. Where he later expired. <laughs> So I was going through these photographs, and I said to the sheriff, I said, so what does, and, and here's the other thing, Lizzie, is that you never put on a witness you haven't spoken to previously. Oh, right, absolutely. And I made that big mistake because, you know, I was too smart to do that. So I figured, how could the sheriff or the police chief mess this up? So I showed him one, which was literally somebody had taken the camera and pointed it down at the gravel parking lot. And I said, well, can you explain what this is, chief? And he said, well, you see, there's some there's some red markings there, and that's blood, and that's where the victim fell before he was picked up and put in the ambulance and taken to the hospital where he <laughs> later expired. And Lizzie, there was like a light bulb went off in my head because, you know, I see that this is this this is where this person lie on the ground, and this is where the blood was, and I thought to myself, hmm. There's no chalk outline of the body. So I looked at the police chief and I said, Uh-oh. Now, chief, isn't there something missing in this photograph? And he looked at me puzzled, Lizzie. And then the next thing he said, uh, well, what would you be talking about, counselor? And let me just tell you, anytime a law enforcement officer refers to you as counselor, you better get ready because it's not going to be flattering. Uh-oh. And I said, well... Well, Chief, there's no outline of the body. And he said, Counselor, you know, we don't chalk them while they're still breathing because it tends to make them nervous. <laughs> so that was my first case that I tried, and and I got set straight, and I never put on a witness again that I didn't talk to. And Did you get a conviction? We did. Okay. We did. Of course we did. I mean, we wouldn't be trying them if they weren't guilty. Uh, uh, and then the other wait a second we can't pass the fly over that comment no we would not we would not take a case to oh you we, personally we would never take because there are lots of innocent people who tried i would never take a case to trial that i didn't believe there was probable cause that the person committed the offense now 
I had tried cases where I believe that the jury's decision to find a person not guilty was the right verdict. Okay, because there's a difference between innocent and not guilty. That's right. So I guess the only other story that I would tell Lizzie is that uh, this is more of the humorous variety, not on myself, but we had an old bailiff that uh, was named Ross Royal, and uh, this was in Caldwell County, and, um, and he had a previous occupation of being a mortician. Um, and uh, after he retired from being in the funeral business, he came to work over to the courthouse to be the bailiff in the district court. And uh, we were trying a case one day, and um, it was, I believe, something like a, a robbery case or something like that. You know, it's customary for when the judge exits the courtroom for the bailiff to ask the jury to please rise. And so uh, Judge Pfeiffer was leaving the courtroom that day, and Mr. Royal, I guess, kind of got... Uh, carried back to a former time in his life and he said instead of will the jurors please rise he said will the pallbearers all please uh. rise <laughs> and I looked over at the defendant and he was looking at his lawyer like he said I didn't know this was a death penalty case <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one so that's 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 some of what happened tell the Wapner story well when I was in again in the DA's office in Lockhart one of our duties was also to represent the state in the justice courts, what's called the Justice of the Peace Courts, which is the court that has jurisdiction over the most minor offenses. Like traffic court? Uh, that would be city court. We oh. had things like um, public intoxication, uh, letting livestock out. It's like misdemeanor stuff. You know, Lizzie, that was what it'd be. It would be misdemeanors, which you know what they say about mis sex is like a misdemeanor. The more you misdemeanor you get. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, uh, the justice of the peace we had was named Potsy Cardwell. And you didn't have to be a lawyer to be a JP. In fact, probably if you were a lawyer, you didn't need to be a JP out in the sticks, we call it. So we tried a case in his court one day, and his court actually consisted of his garage out in the country. Oh, my gosh. And uh, we had a card table for counsel table. Uh, I believe that the defendant was charged with some level of disturbing the peace. I think it was maybe something like discharging a firearm or something like that or causing a noxious odor or something like that. And he was not represented by counsel. So uh, this, uh, this case we tried, um, I showed up, my head on my lawyer suit, and Judge Cardwell was there along with his court clerk, and the defendant was there, uh, what we call pro se, didn't have a lawyer. And, uh, but several times the uh, defendant decided he was going to object our evidence, and, oh. and uh, at one point in time, um, I believe that uh, the judge said that the defendant needed to go ahead and tell us what happened, and we said, well, judge, you better not do that because he has a right to remain silent. You can't force him to testify. He said, well, who says that? And we said, well, that would be the United States Constitution. Oh, my. And he said, I overrule that. And I said, Judge, you better not overrule that. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to overrule the U.S. Constitution? He said it probably didn't apply in Lytton Springs, Texas, in Caldwell County, Precinct 4, where he was the judge. <laughs> so anyway, um, his court clerk was named Rose. And uh, after we'd ended the evidence, uh, Judge Cardwell said, uh, well, I tell you what, we're going to be back in a few minutes with our decision.
And I thought that was interesting because he used the word our instead of his decision. So he and Rose, his court clerk, they went inside the house and they stayed in there about 10 minutes and then came back out. And of course, he found the defendant guilty. Later on, I was talking to Rose. I said, Rose, you know, I'm wondering why didn't the judge just rule from the bench right at the close of evidence? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, y'all went inside the house and he said, I'll be back in a few minutes with my decision. I said, what did y'all do? What did y'all do in there? She said, oh, we just drank coffee. And I said, well, what, what, why, why did he go inside and, and not just rule then? She said, Tom, have you ever seen Judge Wapner on TV? And on the I people's said, court. I said, what's, she said, on the people's court. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. She said, don't you notice how at the close of evidence, he'll say, I'll be back in a few minutes for my decision. And I said, yeah, I said, because that's, I said, that's why they go to commercial break. That's how they sell their show. She said, well, that's how he learned how to try cases. <laughs> he watched the people's court on TV. And Judge Wapner said you had to be back in a few minutes with your decision. He figured that's the way he needed to be as well. <laughs> that's one of my favorites. That's a good one. Well, Lizzie, I sure have enjoyed being on your show. Thank you, Tom, TK, sorry. Thank you, TK, for joining us. Uh, we got lots of good insights. And, you know, I, I know this is probably going to be a very popular episode for your listener. And uh, if your listener would ever like to call in for questions or anything like that, or if you could access me remotely, I mean, Texas is a long way from here, but, you know, they got the miracle of the Internet. Yeah, email us at thestatusquo at gmail.com for any questions you have for TK, and uh, I'll relay them. I just have one last question. What? What kind of gifts do you give your guests? I give you the gift of grandchild. Ah, that's the best. That's the best one. You never disclose on this show that you have a little one, do you? I sure did. Do you speak to him by name? I do because my co-host, who is not here, we miss you, Tommy. My co-host is Tommy, and my child is named Tommy. By coincidence, that's my name. Oh, weird. Isn't that weird that he has a, my son has the same name as his grandfather? Weird. Well, Lizzie, we just want to say we're very proud of you. Thanks. And uh, this is the first time I've ever been on a podcast. Well, look at that. Do you think I have a, a podcast with like four whole listeners? Who knows might not hear this thing? What? Who knows might not hear this? Who knows might not hear this? Correct. That's right. Could be. T uh, Tossie. Terry yes. Bentley Hill, attorney at law. Do you think of your story? No. Okay. We'll have her back on to share her story. Well, I'll just say happy trails. Happy trails. Thank you very much. You were delightful, both of you. And thank you for being my son's grandparents and my parents. Y'all are the best. If you like us, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back next week. And until then... Don't forget to stick to the, to the state, state as quo. quo.